are in Acts chapter 20. So find Acts chapter 20. We're going to start today by reading that entire chapter. Acts chapter 20. So in reading Acts chapter 20 today, you can see in your notes I have noted Bible Gateway, NIV by Dramatize. There were so many names and, and cities in this passage that I decided that we'd be better off if I let the experts read this today. So you follow along. I'm going to play it on the computer. We're going to uh, read Acts chapter 20 together. So I'm sure in the first uh, 15 verses or so, you, you, you understood why I wanted them to read it, right? There's a lot of names in there. I want you to understand that as we've been working our way through Acts, we've been concentrating on what the Holy Spirit is doing, what the church is doing, what the apostles are doing, and then it was Peter and it was Paul, and, and we're progressing along, and then we've seen the church form, and we're seeing the leaders develop in the church, and so we're moving towards the end of the transition. We're also moving towards the end of the book, and so... Luke, as a writer of Acts, which was a continuation of Luke, so he wrote Luke, and he's writing Acts, and he probably started Acts shortly after, at least his research, shortly after he, he mailed off his copy of Luke to, to the Theophilus. And so now we're at the point in the, in the letter where he's more selective in what he tells us about. We're not, we're not hearing everything that happened in every place. We, we just covered six months of time in 15, 16 verses, and then he stopped to tell us about one day, one conversation in the next 15 verses or so. So we're, we're moving along, we're just getting highlights now, and, and so we have to, to read it like that. I think our, our chunks of scripture that we cover are going to get a little bit bigger, because we're also looking for the new information, the, the, the new thing that, that's being told. And so we have... Um, it laid out like it is, and, and let's just look at our notes and let's see what we can learn from this. So, Acts 21 through 16, in your notes it says, this explains how Paul got from Ephesus to Greece and then back to Miletus. So if we didn't have those 15 verses, we'd, in the last chapter, Paul left Ephesus, and then all of a sudden he's calling for the leaders to give him the last message. Well, six months or so have passed in between here, and if you're reading the story and you know who these characters are, maybe you've met some of them and you're following along, you would, you would wonder why. So I think part of the narrative is to let us know that Paul was still working, he was still traveling, he was still doing things, but these set of circumstances and this route got him here. So we've covered time and space. He's back in Ephesus. He doesn't want to go into Ephesus because he was just there for three years. And he, he kind of said, if I, if I go into Ephesus, I'm going to get stuck there. I'm going to be talking to everybody again, and I need, I need to push on. So he calls for the leaders. The difference now between when he left and, and this point in time is that he has come to the conclusion, based on the Holy Spirit speaking to him, that he's never going to see them again. He knows that he's going to be arrested he knows he's going to be jailed, and I think he's becoming aware, if not aware already, that he's probably about to die. And so he is traveling back by. He spent three years with these people. Last time he left, he thought he would be back again. Now he's realizing he's not, and he says, okay, now I have some last words. So when we get to verse 17, we hear about those last words. 
Now let's fill in the blanks here for this first section. Without Acts 20.17, without this, Acts 20.17 would be very strange. That's, you know, how did you get here? You just left, that kind of stuff. We're transitioning in the narrative to the next big events in Paul's life, which takes place in Jerusalem. So we're moving ahead quickly because Luke, the author, wants us to get to Jerusalem because that's where the next big thing happens. But interestingly enough, in writing, writing the story, one event seems noteworthy to mention. That's this Eutychus thing. Why is it noteworthy? Because it's never happened before. And it's probably never happened again. How many people have fallen asleep during a sermon and fallen out a third-story window? Probably maybe a little bit unique that Paul preached till midnight when he fell out the window, went down and healed him, came back up, apparently served a meal, and then preached till morning again. So I don't know how many hours Paul preached, but he preached all through the night, stopped a little bit to heal someone who he killed, in essence, and, and then uh, have a meal. So we have that going on. So I think Luke was like, well, you know, we need to get where we're going, but this was really interesting. And we could talk about a lot of things. You know, why was he sitting in the window? Why was Paul preaching so long? Um, was, was he just tired or was, he, was Paul boring? Um, why did Paul not get the hint and stop? We could talk about all kinds of stuff, but pretty irrelevant things. I think the point of these first 16 verses is to get us to Milpitas where we have the discussion. So in your notes, Acts 20, 17 through 37, Paul says goodbye to his dear friends who are the elders in Ephesus and gives this final instruction for leading their congregation. He's basically saying, I'm not going to be back, so I need to pass the mantle to you. I need to pass the mantle to you. So continuing in our notes, at this time, at this point in time in the transition from Judaism to Christianity, from no church to church, at this point, the apostles were the leaders of the elders. So we have the apostles, the original group that, that Jesus lived with and taught personally, Maybe Matthias, there's question whether he should be included in the group, but definitely now Paul. So we have, we have 12 or 13 apostles, and these are the authoritative voice of the church representing God. So when they say this is how it is, that's how it is. When they say this is what Jesus taught, they have the authority to say that, and everyone accepts it. They are the leaders of the church. They're establishing doctrine. Eventually, they're going to be writing things down. We're going to get the Gospels from this group. We're going to get the Epistles from this group. We're going to get the, the prophecies like Revelation and whatnot from this group. Uh, this is the group of people that establish Christianity as it is. So the apostles are in charge. Now they have appointed elders in almost every church that exists so far, and the elders were the leaders of the churches. So we have a, a hierarchy now. We have the apostles who are getting older, who are being persecuted. Some of them have been martyred already. Uh, they're going to be shrinking in number, but we have elders in the churches, local people who live in the city, who attend the church, who understand the culture. We have elders who are leading the churches. And then the congregants served in various roles leading other congregants. So much like today, we don't have apostles today. We don't have people speaking for God, creating scripture, with that level of authority, having spoken to Christ and heard from Christ and, and gained their knowledge directly from him. We, we're not inspiring any books of the Bible, anything like that. So the, the apostles are gone now. But we do have elders leading churches. 
And we have congregants serving in various roles, Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, youth leaders, deacons, um, fellowship committee, all kinds of stuff, and we serve one another. That's still how our church operates. That's how all churches operate. And then the next line, all were Christ's representatives. So the apostles were representatives of Christ. The elders are representatives of Christ. The congregants are representatives of Christ. The word I like to use the best, it's a Bible word, is ambassadors. They were ambassadors. They were ambassadors to the unsaved near them and everywhere they traveled. So all the people in the church were evangelists and all the people were ambassadors. They were also disciplers and they were leaders and some had particular roles and some had more authority and they had different names. The highest ranking below the apostle was the elder. That's, that's where they stood right now. And, and this is, is, is a bit of a transition. Why do we have verse 17 through 37 here? Because one, this is brand new talk information. This is the very first time Paul's ever said, hey, I'm never going to see you again. This is the very first time Paul's been in a situation where he's looking at a group of people that he has invested in, that he has loved and cared for and taught and led. Very first time he's ever faced a group of people and said, I'm never going to see you again. Every other time he's been, he said, I, I, I can't wait to get back. Lord willing, I'll, I'll return. I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be have more to tell you about. But now he's saying, I'm never coming back. And realizing he's never going to come back, he's, he's going to give his final instructions. He's going to say, now that I know I'm not coming back, this is what I have for you. And in that conversation, he handed the mantle of authority over to the elders. Really, in effect, saying, you guys are in charge now. This is your church. You have to make this happen. It's no longer going to depend on me. I might interact in a letter or two. We might have a conversation here or there. But, but this is yours now. So this is another transition. And the book of Acts is all about transition. So we're transitioning. Really, this is the first step in a transition from the apostles being in charge to the elders in the churches being in charge. So we have all that going on. Now, because of all that, I have therefore, therefore, what Paul said to the elders should be passed on to the congregants. I, I hope you realize that, that we can never read Scripture when it says, the, uh, a deacon must be, or an elder must be, or an overseer must be, and we can never say, oh good, I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. Therefore, I don't have to read this part. That's never how it was intended, and that's never how it works. When it says a deacon must be, or an elder must be, what's being said is, hey, if you're going to be a leader in the church, you need to have these qualifications. But the sub-messages if you belong to Christ, you need to be working towards these qualifications. You need to be growing in your faith. You need to be becoming who God wants you to be. It's very interesting that nowhere in Scripture does any command or any instruction have a stop point. There's no grow this far and you're fine. Give this much and you're good. There, there's no learn this passage and that's it. There, it it's, it's always a never-ending process. Sanctification never stops happening. So what Paul said to the elders, the elders would take home and pass on to the church, and, and they would teach, and in effect, even replace themselves over time. And that's how the church grows, and that's how the people grow. So therefore, again, Paul's instructions are not only instructions for elders, but for future elders, current and future leaders, and all those who serve in any way. So what I've just done, I've just made my case 
that what we're going to read as Paul's final instructions to the elders in Ephesus are also instructions for us. Every one of us who's a leader, every one of us who's a member, every one of us who's involved in ministry, and every one of us who just showed up today to to find out what God has to say. Everything we're going to read, everything we have read in this final, hey, I'm never going to see you again, here's a few things I really want to say, it's all for us. So how we're going to tackle that on the back side of your page We're going to ask the question, what can we learn from Paul's words and Paul's example? And that's really what he gives us. He gives us his example, and then he gives us some instruction. What can we learn? What can you and I learn from his instruction and his example? And I just listed. I gave you a verse so you can reference it. You can look back and see if it really says that. And and I just pulled some things from the scriptures, uh, sometimes repeating the statement, sometimes summarizing them. But I'm going to work through the notes, and I just want us to say, what can we learn? What example is being given to us? So the whole sermon today is practically application. What can we apply from what Paul said? So first off, in verse 19, fill in the blanks, I served with great humility. I served with great humility and with tears in the midst of hardship. I served with great humility and with tears in the midst of hardship. Now, honestly, that one verse could be an entire sermon. And in some settings, it would be an entire sermon. I don't want it to be the entire sermon today, but I do want to uh, emphasize the fact that this is, the, this is kind of the package right here. Everything else could almost be summed up in this. What did Paul do? What example did he set? He served. He went from town to town. He went from synagogue to synagogue. He went from meeting place to meeting place. He always shared the gospel with the Jews first, then the Gentiles. He met with whoever would meet with him. He shared with whoever would listen to him. He then discipled anyone that would respond. And he took those people and he helped them form a church. And he he made them self-sufficient. And then he moved on to the next place. He was always serving. There's There's no indication that Paul ever took a vacation, that he ever needed time off. He was discouraged at one point in time, and we saw what God did for him, but he served. So so what's the application for us? Well, I need to be serving. A healthy believer will be serving in some capacity. Inside the church, outside the church, in my family, in my neighborhood, at my workplace, I'm going to be known as a servant. I'm going to serve. I'm going to do it with humility. My motive will never be that I look good. I'm never going to say, hey, I want to serve. Everybody be sure and notice that I'm serving. Look at my serving clothes. Aren't they nice? Watch me, watch my technique while I serve. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ask for more. I'm not going to use that to leverage somebody in the future. He served with humility. It was never about Paul. It was about the people, and more so than that, it was about Jesus. I'm serving because of who Jesus is and what he has to offer, what he's done for me. I'm not looking for anything from you. I'm just here to share the gospel. So he served with humility and with tears, which means he got emotionally involved. He got emotionally attached to these people. They were very sad when he said, hey, I'm never coming back. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they're going to kill me. They They were emotional. He was emotional. He got attached. When, when someone walked away that had shown promise and progress, had made a profession of faith and then walked away, it bothered him. 
It, it hurt his feelings. He felt like a failure, I'm sure. And when others came through and, and continued to grow and progress and took on ministry and, and, and did the Lord's work, I'm sure it brought him great joy and encouragement. He was emotionally invested and emotionally attached to the people he was leading and serving. And he did all of this under great hardship. Remember, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was falsely accused, he was put on trial. They ran him out of town, he had to be snuck out of town. Everywhere he went, they were opposing him. Even in the 18 months where God said, hey, don't worry about it, the Jews aren't going aren't to get you, there were still accusations. So he was always in hardship. So basically he said, you know, I served with humility, and I served with tears, and I did it even when it was hard. I didn't give up, and I didn't quit. Well, there's an example we can follow. So that's, that's the first thing we can learn, our first application. Verse 20, it said, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. I have not hesitated to preach anything. I love that line. That's a great verse. A long time ago, maybe because someone preached on this and I heard it, I don't know. I don't know where it got into my head. But a long time ago, I made a commitment to God that I would preach whatever comes in the message, in the passage. I wouldn't skip anything because it was controversial or embarrassing or, or might cause someone to get angry. I wouldn't teach anything to get someone angry, but I'm just going to teach what the Bible says. I'm going to be accurate to what the Bible says, and it's up to God to deal with that. And I'm going to be honest. There have been times when I have looked out in the congregation and I have said, really, today? This is the topic today? People are going to be upset with me. And then I go, but this is your scripture. You planned everyone to be here, so this must be what they need to hear. So here we go, and we preach it. And that's, that's how it works. And I love that Paul said, I never hesitated. I never held back. I never worried about political correctness. I never worried about feelings. Now, I don't think he was a jerk about it, but he didn't, he didn't hesitate to preach anything that would be helpful. Here's some instruction. Here's some warning. Here's some things that you're doing wrong. He never hesitated to preach anything. And then the next line is equally important, but he did both publicly and from house to house. The message didn't change. If you saw him on the street and you said, hey, Paul, what, what's the deal with this? He gave you the exact same message as if he was preaching it in the sermon on Sunday or in a, in a public gathering. The, the, the message did not change. The source of truth did not change. Opinions didn't come into it. He didn't hesitate to preach anything, and he did it both publicly and privately. And then verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks. So not only did the message not change based on where he was, it also did not change based on who he was talking to. The same message of repentance and salvation through Jesus Christ to the Jews and the Greeks. Everyone, everyone was a sinner. Everyone needed to be saved. Jesus died for everyone. The gospel didn't change. The provisions didn't change. The message didn't change. Preach the same message to both Jews and Greeks, which would be Jews and anyone not Jews. Greek is, Greeks is a polite way of saying Gentiles, because in a lot of Jewish circles, Gentile was almost a cuss word. It was, it was a um, racist term, because anyone that was a Gentile was hated. So we start, you notice we started using the word Greeks because now we're looking for them, we're seeking them. We want everyone to hear the gospel. So he didn't hesitate to teach anything. He taught it both publicly and privately, and he taught it to whoever would listen. 
Verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. There's a goal for our spiritual walk. Wouldn't it, how awesome would it be if we were all able to say, you know what, the most important thing in my life is fulfilling the mission that Jesus Christ has given me. And I'm going to make that my priority. And if it costs me my home, great. If it costs me my family, great. If it costs me all my money, great. If it costs me my life, great. I'm not going to worry about the comforts of this world or the longevity of my life. I'm going to serve God first and foremost. That was the attitude Paul had. That's a great goal for us. I'm not, I'm not sure how close we can get to that. I think Paul was an exceptional person in that way. He wasn't married. He didn't have a family. So those kinds of things made it a little easier. He wasn't attached really anywhere. But this is a goal that, that I'm going to serve God first and foremost. Verse 26, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. That's a really interesting statement because it sounds like, hey, when they come kill you, it's not my fault. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying, based on the context, he says, I've, I've told you everything there is to tell you. I didn't, I didn't hesitate to teach anything. I taught it publicly and privately. I told it to both Jew and Greek. And if you leave this earth not knowing Jesus, that's your fault, not mine. I did my job. I left no stone unturned. I, I, I didn't hold back. If if an appointment was set up by God for us, we talked. And I don't think I think it's just a euphemism of if you if you die spiritually, it's not on me because I did everything I was supposed to do. And to be able to say that really sounds like he did the things above. So that was kind of the example portion. Then we move to instructions, verse twenty-eight. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. And, and, and I think there's two parts there. That's why I had you write and in there. Not because I just wanted to give you an easy word to spell. Keep watch over yourself. Just pay attention to yourselves. Keep watch. Check yourself. Make sure that you're on top of things. Don't, don't get lax. Don't get lackadaisical. Don't, don't feel like you've arrived. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock. Remember, these are the leaders. Leaders have to watch themselves because leaders who fall will lead a church that falls. They have to watch themselves. So watch yourself and the flock. You have a double duty. You've got to pay attention to all that's going on around you. Keep watch. And then it says, be shepherds of the church. You know, a shepherd guides and a shepherd protects. And a shepherd brings his sheep to a place where they can flourish and grow and be healthy. So he's saying to these leaders, keep watch over yourself and your flock, be shepherds, do the guiding, do the leading, do the protecting, do the teaching, help you and everyone around you to flourish. Why is this important? Because verse 29, savage wolves will come. Savage wolves will come. They will come and they're not there to hang out. They're there to kill and destroy and devour. A wolf never plays a game never has a little bit of fun there's always destruction in mind and then verse 30 he says even some of you will rise up and distort the truth and so be aware pay attention keep watch shepherd the flock because people are coming who intend to hurt you and even some of you will rise up even some of you will lose sight of what i've taught 
what you're supposed to do, what Christ has done in your life. Even some of you will be tempted by fame and fortune, power and position. Even some of you will decide that you would rather be God than serve God. Even some of you will rise up and distort the truth. So pay attention, beware, shepherd the flock, because there's some dangerous people and some dangerous times ahead. Verse 31, so be on guard. Don't forget my constant warnings. Don't forget my warnings. As I told you, I told you day and night that there are savage wolves. There are people that want to take advantage of you. There are people that will teach you false doctrine. There are people that want your money more than your, your, your uh, love. They, they, they're not here representing Christ. They're representing themselves. And in doing so, they're really representing Satan. So be on guard. And while you're on guard, verse 32, know this. Only God's word and God's grace can and will make you who you need to be. Only God's word. He's saying, be on guard. Watch yourself. Be on guard. Be on the lookout for these people that are going to harm you. I've warned you over and over again. And bottom line, folks, bottom line, pay attention. This is it. Bottom line, only the word of God is going to sustain you. Only the word of God has the power and the truth and the strength. And, and the unchangeability and, and the fact that it's alive and active, only God's word is going to get you through this. So don't rely on yourselves. Keep watch as a shepherd of God's flock using Scripture. Only God's word and his grace, which flows from that, is capable of, of keeping you in the right place, going the right direction, doing the right thing. So he said, you have my example, you have my instructions, and then he brings back a little bit more of the example, verse 33. He says, I never coveted, I never coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. This is kind of a cool statement. He says, I, I never wanted your stuff. I, I didn't want your, your gold, I didn't want your clothing, I didn't want your silver, I didn't want your money, I didn't want your possessions. I, I didn't come here to get your stuff. Matter of fact, he says in Philippians, I learned to live in the, when I was super poor and I learned to live when I was pretty comfortable. I sleep on the floor behind the house, or I can sleep in the bedroom in the nice bed. Either one's fine. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says, I'm good either way, wherever God takes me. I never wanted your stuff. And that is a great attitude to have. If you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be a teacher, if you're going to lead people, that's a great attitude to have. Really, the attitude to have is I'm not even going to look at your stuff. I'm just going to take what God's given me, and I'm going to run with it. And whatever God's giving you, I hope you're running with it also. I hope you're using it for his glory. I think he would also say, I never wanted your talents. I never wanted your expertise. I didn't covet any of that. What God gave me was what I had. Verse 34 says, I've worked hard to make sure that me and my people were taken care of. He says, not, not, I, I didn't want your stuff. And, and to make that really clear, I didn't even ask for it. I made sure that we took care of ourselves. Through the offering, through my tent making, through my own work, we lived at a standard that matched our income. We took care of ourselves. I worked to make sure this was the truth, that, that no accusation could be given. And then verse 35, in this kind of, excuse me, it's this kind of hard work that is required to help the weak. What kind of hard work is this? Selfless hard work. Remember the humility? Remember the not coveting anybody's silver or gold? It's selfless hard work. Selfless hard work gets the job done. That works everywhere. Selfless hard work gets the job done. 
No, I, I know you're putting your stuff away. That's great. I got five minutes. I want to run through this, and I want you to hear it kind of strung together. I, I want you to hear the, the, the length of it and the depth of it as, as just kind of reading it quickly. So here's, here's what Paul said. Here's Paul's example and his instructions. We need to serve one another with great humility. We should be emotionally attached to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should serve with humility and be emotionally attached even when it gets hard. When hardship comes from the outside and when hardship comes from the inside, we need to stick together. We need to love and serve one another and love and serve those who Christ died for. He says, I never, I never hesitate to preach anything. I shouldn't shy away from difficult topics. I shouldn't not teach things because someone might be offended. I need to teach what the Bible says when the Bible teaches it. It needs to be the same message at home as at work, as in the church, as in my Sunday school class, it's the same message no matter where I'm at and no matter who I'm talking to. Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs to hear the truth. In order to accomplish these things, I've given up, you know, the American dream of the good life. I'm not looking for ease and comfort and, and luxury. It's way more important to me at this point in my life to serve God and God first. And whatever he gives me, I'll use that to serve him too. I hope no one ever says, wow, I, I'm in hell because you didn't talk to me. And of course, that wouldn't be true, even if they did say it, but I hope no one ever has an opportunity to say it. We all need to keep watch over ourselves and the flock. We need to watch out for ourselves and each other. We need to guide, protect, and help each other become strong and healthy and flourish as believers. We need to watch out for the people that are going to take advantage of us and try to steal our faith and and, and, and teach false things. We even need to be so bold as to watch each other to make sure we're not falling into those traps. Following the example of one of these folks. We need to be on guard. And we need to hear this stuff over and over again. We need warning night and day so that it's always on our mind so we don't forget. Uh, and, and it's okay to repeat stuff. The bottom line, only God's word governs our actions. Only God's word governs truth. Only God's word governs our thoughts and our motives. It's God's grace that allows things to happen in a good way. I'm not after anybody else's stuff. I don't even need to look at it. I don't want it. Okay? I'm here to work hard, to take care of myself, and in my selfless, hard work, God will accomplish His will. That's the message from Paul today. Long chapter. That's the message. That's what he's saying to these people. This is, this is who I need you to be. Therefore, that's who we need to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this pretty straightforward message. It's really nice just to have it laid out for us and challenge us in these ways. I pray that you would challenge us in our spirits with our motives, with our desires, with our priorities. With, with what makes us tick and what's important to us and, and help us to arrange our priorities so they're, they're faithful to you. And if you give us a lot, help us to use a lot for your kingdom. If you give us a little, help us to use what we have for your kingdom because you have a task and a place for all of us in all these circumstances. Help us to serve you well. And may we always be watching out for those who want to lead us astray because they're around and there's lots of them. 
And the more we know of you and the truth and the Word of God, the more obvious it's going to be when a false teacher shows up. So help us to learn and depend on your Word too. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.